0: Simply because, good morning everybody, you might want to flip back to the John reading which we're going to look at in some depth this morning. Because the text that we're looking at today is the epilogue to John's gospel. John has already given us his conclusion, the conclusion to his gospel which he presented to us by means of the story of Thomas. It is Thomas who responds to the risen Lord Jesus, saying to him, My Lord and my God. Well, John has written his gospel in order that we who believe in Jesus might also be able to make that same confession, make that same act of worship declaring to Jesus, My Lord and my God. And that, so believing, we might have life in his name. What's an epilogue? Well, an epilogue is some kind of further comment after the conclusion has already been given. Lots of films have epilogues. Um, The story is finished, but then, just before or during or after the credits, there are words on the screen telling you about, for example, the significance of what you've just seen, such as in the film The Imitation Game. Or, the words might tell you what the characters will do later in the future, such as films like uh, American Graffiti, um, Four Weddings and a Funeral, and Legally Blonde. Um, <coughs> or an epilogue. Uh, sometimes an epilogue shows you the real people about which that film was about, and and you get that kind of epilogue with films like Erin Brockovich, um, The Blind Side, uh, and uh, Lion. <coughs> So epilogues. Epilogues give you comment after the conclusion has already been reached. So then perhaps with respect to John's epilogue, our first question should be, why is this epilogue necessary? That's the first question I want to ask. Why is this necessary? Followed by an equally obvious one. So what? What's the relevance for us, for you and for me? Why Uh, is this relevant? Why why should I know this? Well, uh, John's epilogue comes to us in the form of three scenes, and uh, the cast list is this. It's starring Jesus, Uh, Simon Peter, Thomas, also known as Didymus, Nathaniel from Cana, James and John, the sons of Zebedee, and two other unnamed disciples. Scene 1, the fishing trip that concludes with breakfast on the beach with Jesus. That's verses 1 to 14. Scene 2, Jesus has a heart-to-heart with Peter. That's verses 15 to 22. Scene 3, the narrator tells us about the author. That's verses 23 to 25. I'd like to start with scene three. The narrator tells us about the author. And this is what we learn. The Gospel of John is an eyewitness account of Jesus' ministry. The author is, is the eyewitness, and he refers to himself throughout the narrative as the disciple whom Jesus loved or as the beloved disciple this author uh, was almost certainly writing down his memories for his own christian community for his church and therefore whilst the book is anonymous there's there's no name attached just this this nom de plume just this this kind of nickname this pen name the beloved disciple uh, it's it is technically anonymous but it is certainly not anonymous in the sense of the author being hidden or unknown the first readers probably knew exactly who the author was because they knew him personally. He was writing for them. And they also knew exactly why he chose to refer to himself obliquely because a true witness points away from themselves to Jesus. And that's a major theme in this gospel. Well, the information that we find out both in the Bible and from other historical sources make it very likely Not absolutely certain, but very likely, that our eyewitness is John, son of Zebedee, brother of James. Um, Probably the youngest of the disciples, he was the only one of the twelve not to be martyred. Indeed, he he died of old age, probably in his mid-90s, in or around the year 100 A.D., We know lots about him. He'd he'd taken uh, Jesus' mother into his own care um, after that first Easter weekend. Uh, He'd been banished to the island of Patmos as part of the persecutions of the Emperor Domitian late in the first century. He was the pastor for a time of the church in Ephesus. Uh, He authored one gospel, three letters or epistles, and the book of Revelation. He wrote his gospel well and truly after Peter's death. Peter's death was in the, was in the mid-60s. And it, it, it's obvious from the fact alone that out of all of the gospels, it's John's gospel that tells us that actually it was Peter who cut off that servant's ear. You know, like um, on the night before Jesus was crucified, all the other gospels blank his name. Now that he's dead, John can reveal it was Peter. He, he did it. This is the disciple who testifies to these things and who wrote them down. The verb testifies there is a present tense participle. Literally, this is the disciple who is testifying about these things. He continues to testify. And suddenly, there is a plural, a first person verb. We, we know that his testimony is true. Who, who 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 is this we? Well, we don't know. I don't know. We don't know for certain. Presumably something like John, together with his church community, which may have included a whole bunch of other witnesses who were there at some point or a time, including, of course, Jesus' own mother, who we know John took into his household and cared for as his own mother. And indeed, I, I think she is what we would call today a co-author Of John's gospel because in John's gospel her name is blanked she is nameless we all know her name's Mary but she's nameless in John's gospel Uh, just as he and his brother are nameless in this scripture which is very odd they're introduced by way of their title after a series of names we just get sons of Zebedee you know that's a very odd way of introducing two cast members their title but not their names Um. So uh, who is the we? Well, um, maybe a bunch of witnesses in that church or, or the whole church. Together they just know, um, because of all the conversation happening, that they all collectively stand behind the document as true testimony. Perhaps it may also include us, born of the Spirit. We, we, we just know that the Spirit testifies with us. We know that his testimony is true. I'm not sure who the we is. Those are some guesses. But then suddenly we return to first-person singular. Jesus did many other things as well. If every one of them were written down, I suppose, I suppose, that even the whole world would not have room for the books that would be written. So with these last verse, John himself is signing off. Uh, Scene 3, therefore, gives us our author, and all we need to know about him. Perhaps, again, speculation, but perhaps at this point in time, this disciple is is very elderly, maybe maybe even close to death, and that's causing fear and consternation within his particular Christian community because a tradition has arisen that Jesus would return before that disciple died. Well, if that speculation is true, that's why we'd need scene two. Excuse me. Scenes 1 and 2 show us how Peter was reinstated as a leader of the church. John is once again, we've seen him do this so many times, he's once again filling in some gaps for us, gaps left unfilled by the other three Gospels Matthew, Mark, and Luke. John, our author, he knows that we know those other gospels. He he knows that we know the story of Acts. He knows that, that we know the growth of the early church after Jesus went back to heaven. He knows that we know about Peter's wonderful leadership in those days, how he took responsibility for the election of Matthias by lot, how he took the initiative in addressing the crowds on the day of Pentecost, how he healed crippled beggars, confronted the Sanhedrin, challenged Ananias and Sapphira, led the expansion, converted um, uh, Cornelius and his household, led the expansion of the church out of Jerusalem into Judea, Samaria, even to Rome, etc., etc., But John knows that we don't know because neither Matthew, Mark, nor Luke has told us how this same Peter was restored after his fall. Because fall he did. On the night before Jesus was crucified, Simon Peter and Jesus had this conversation. Chapter 13. Simon Peter asked Jesus, Lord, where... Are you going? Jesus replied, where I am going, you cannot follow now, but you will follow later. Peter asked, Lord, why can't I follow you now? I will lay down my life for you. Then Peter answered, will you really lay down your life for me? Very truly, I tell you, before the rooster crows, you will disown me. Three times. And very early the next morning, having followed the captured Jesus, as far as the outer courtyard of the home of the high priest, inside of which Jesus was being interrogated, Simon Peter did deny. He denied that he knew Jesus, and he denied that he was one of the disciples, and he did that three times. So far away was he from his own words that he was ready to die for Christ. That he denied him not once, not twice, but three times. So, scenes 1 and 2 of the epilogue are showing us something very important, how Peter was reinstated. It's the second calling of Peter. Indeed, scene 1, which John has remembered and written down for us, really, if we're going to understand it, it actually depends upon us knowing another story about Peter, one which John didn't write down for us because he knew we already knew it, Uh, from Luke's gospel, he knows that we already know it, and that story is the first calling of Peter. And you can find that in Luke chapter 5. Way back at the start of Jesus' public ministry, Peter, James, and John were were cleaning up after a night's fishing on the shores of Lake Galilee, close by to where Jesus just happens to be teaching to a large crowd. Jesus asked Peter if he could use his boat as a speaking platform to address the crowds, and Peter obliged. And pushing the boat out, uh, Jesus addressed the crowd. And at the end of the class, Jesus said to Peter, put out into deep water, let down the nets for a catch. Peter replied, Master, (laughs) I've worked hard all night and haven't got anything, but because you say so. I'll let down the nets. And as soon as they did so, they caught such a huge number of fish that their nets began to break. They had to signal for help to come and bring the catch in. Both Both boats present were nearly swamped by the size of the catch. And when Peter saw this, he suddenly had a glimpse of who it was, who he had with him in the boat, and his response was fear. And in fear, he said, go away from me, Lord, I am a sinful man. Jesus said to him, Don't fear. From now on, you will fish for people. So Peter, James, and John left everything and followed Jesus. Well, we need to know about Peter's original calling. We need to know about his betrayal of Jesus for scenes one and two to make real sense. But we also need the immediate preceding context. Why did Peter suggest a fishing trip? He's just been commissioned by the risen Lord in the previous chapter. As the Father has sent me, I am sending you. Receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive anyone's sins, they are forgiven. If you do not forgive them, they are not forgiven. These disciples, they have a mission. To represent Jesus to the world as Jesus represented the Father to Israel. The disciples have the Spirit, God's empowering presence for mission. The disciples have a message, the Gospel, forgiveness of sins in the name of Jesus of Nazareth, who is both Lord and Savior. So what on earth is Peter doing going on a fishing trip? They certainly look like a a bunch of men without a purpose maybe they're distracted, maybe they're disoriented, discouraged. Maybe they're still trying to come to grips with, 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 what, with what things mean. They don't know what else to do. So they go out. They're kind of in the dark, and in the dark they catch nothing. And then uh, in, in the early light of dawn, uh, they see Jesus on the shore, and they don't recognize him. I mean, why should they? He's 90 meters away in the gloom of dawn. Uh, but then Jesus calls out to them, saying, literally, "'Children!' Have you some cooked fish? Uh, Children is the Hebrew term for disciples, for, for students. Jesus has just called out, Students, do you have any cooked fish? Does the penny drop? I mean, that's a strange way of greeting strangers. Does the penny drop? No. Throw your net on the right side of the boat and you'll find some. Who gives instructions like that? Does the penny drop? Then they, then they haul the nets in, and surprise, surprise, an outrageous catch of fish. Now the penny drops. And once again, we've seen this before, the beloved disciple wants to set the record straight as, as to who did what when it comes to the, his behavior and Peter's. I got it first. Oh, yeah, sure, Peter, Peter got there first, but I understood first it was me. It was my idea. And so they all have breakfast with Jesus. John records for us that the fact that the catch was all large fish, 153 of them. And over the centuries, many, many, many have attempted to find some symbolic meaning in that number with many suggestions, but none are likely or compelling. Uh, John, the fisherman, is doing what all fishermen do instinctively. He's telling us the size of his catch. Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> This scene, which mirrors so beautifully the first calling of Peter, two or three or four years later, now moves into scene two, the second calling of Peter. Peter has denied Jesus three times. Jesus now gives Peter three opportunities to confess his love for him. And three times Peter makes the good confession, Yes, Lord, I love you. And three times Jesus responds by clarifying, his call on, Jesus, on peter's life feed my sheep the first time peter was called he was called from being a fisherman to being a fisher of men to being a fisher of people and evangelist now similarly he is being called from being a fisherman to being a shepherd i don't want you to hunt for fish i want you to take care of sheep and it's it's very easy to decode that figurative language, to feed sheep is to teach Christ's disciples all about Jesus and how to follow him. Jesus concludes with reference to their earlier conversation. The night before Jesus was crucified, Jesus replied to Peter, where I am going, you cannot follow now, but you will follow later. Peter asked, Lord, why can't I follow you now? I will lay down my life for you. And and what we now get in the epilogue is that a second chance to live for Jesus is a second chance to die for Jesus. Very truly, I tell you, when you were younger, you dressed yourself and went out where you wanted but when you are old, you will stretch out your hands and someone else will dress you and lead you where you do not want to go. Jesus said this to indicate the kind of death by which Peter would glorify God. Then he said to him, Follow me. Well, I mean, in John's readers, uh, you know, Jesus' death is a couple of decades in the past. They, they already knew all about Peter's death, how he was crucified in, in Rome um, uh, upside down as part of the persecutions of Nero. Um, Peter will indeed follow Jesus to the cross. The conversation then moves to what Jesus has in store for the beloved disciple. Peter asks him, Lord, what about him? Jesus replies um, figuratively. It's a figure of speech. In effect, Jesus replies, what difference does that make to you? How is that any of your business? even if I wanted to h- him to live to the very end of the age, what difference does that make to you? It's none of, it's none of Peter's business to know Jesus' plans for John. But the conversation is actually helpful for us for any number of reasons, but one reason is that it establishes that crucifixion isn't the only way of living for Jesus by dying for Jesus. John will live his life, day by day, living in life laid down obedience. John knows, John, our author, he knows what we've read. It's it's not in his gospel, he didn't write it down for us, but he knows that we've read from Matthew, Mark and Luke that Jesus said, if anyone would come after me, they must deny themselves, take up their cross and follow me. What do those words mean? Of course, we're used to to, to assuming that those words are figurative. You know, that it means this or it means that. But in the immediate years after Christ's death, it would have not necessarily been clear. People would have had good reason to assume that the way to follow Jesus was literally to be crucified. Well, John is teaching us actually that it's both. Peter will follow Jesus to the cross, literally. He will die for his faith. And in the centuries that followed, vast numbers of other Christians would die for the name of Jesus. And the worst century of all, with respect to Christian martyrdom, as you probably already know, was the 20th century. And this one doesn't look like it's going to be any better. Without question, in many countries, perhaps even most countries, It is a very, very, very dangerous thing to follow Jesus. But others, like John, will follow Jesus to the cross figuratively, a life laid down one day at a time in loving obedience. So then, what is the purpose of this epilogue? Why is it necessary? Well, the epilogue presents to us the final resurrection appearance of Jesus that this author wants to record. This resurrection appearance constitutes the second calling of Peter, his second commissioning, his reinstatement as a principal shepherd of Christ's flock, the church. Um, This final resurrection appearance as an epilogue also furnishes us with all the information we need about our author in order that we might know that the material is trustworthy. That's what, now for the so what. How is this relevant to me, or to you, or to us? Well, uh, last week we saw how, out of the story of Thomas, a Christian is someone who has met the risen Jesus, perhaps physically, perhaps in the spirit, and confesses and worships with the words, my Lord and my God. If you and I are able to do likewise, we may be assured of life in his name. This passage should also likewise move us to awe and worship as we consider who Jesus is in this epilogue. Jesus knows where all the fish are, and not like a fisherman does, like God does. That's amazing, but here's something even more amazing. Jesus continues to speak with the voice and authority of God when it comes to life and death. Jesus said to Peter about the other disciple, if I want him to remain alive until I return, what is that to you? When, where, and how Peter and John die is Jesus' decision. And, And that's extraordinary. Um, something I have here, something that I have in my hand is um, the order of service for the funeral of uh, Gordon Ashman, um, a dear brother who died about two years ago. Uh, some of us here today may remember Gordon and his wife uh, Marjorie. And um, whenever I go to a funeral, whether I'm involved in that funeral or, 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 or attending uh, as, as, a, as a mourner, um, and, and I get an order of service. I always have the same thought in my mind, and, and that is, I, I see two dates: the, the date of birth and the date of the death of the, the one that we're grieving. And my thought, that I, I just can't help thinking it, I always thinking it. One day, one day there'll be an order of service like this for me. I know my date of birth. <laughs> I don't know that other date. And if I did. How i deal with that what this passage is teaching me is that actually jesus of nazareth not only knows this other date for gordon and for me and for you but actually he's in charge of it he is sovereignly he reigns over it it's his decision it's his will Um, (laughs) some might say in some places in the world, with respect to the day of the death, if it is the will, it's it's the will of Allah. Allah being the Arabic word for God. This passage teaches us, therefore, that it's the will of Jesus. Um, Jesus reigns over this. And given that Jesus is both Lord and God, it would be wise to live in communion with him, in conversation with him, in obedience to him, in a way that is pleasing to him. And with respect to that, let's perhaps uh, um, conclude today just by considering, once again, Jesus' question to Peter. Simon, son of John. It's a very formal way of beginning a question, very formal. Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? These what? Uh, actually, it's not clear. Uh, it's, unlikely, it's unlikely that Jesus is asking Peter if he loves him more than the other disciples love him because that's not Peter's place to judge. It's neither right nor possible for Peter to make some kind of estimate as to whether he loves Jesus more than his friends love Jesus. So we can rule that one out. It therefore remains that Jesus is asking one of, of two possible questions or both. One question that Jesus could be asking is, Simon, do you love me more than you love these guys? In other words, do you now hold me in higher regard? My opinion is more important than the opinions of those around you. Are you done with fear of man? Whose approval will motivate you now? Mine? Or are you still worried about being rejected by those who sit around the fire at the high priest's house? Do you love me more than these guys? Alternatively, Jesus could be asking, Simon, do you love me more than you love these fish? In other words... Are you ready and willing to leave this beloved occupation of yours that just seems to call you back time and time again? Are you ready to trust me for your upkeep and livelihood? Are you ready to sit light to the things of this world for the sake of the kingdom? Yes, Lord, you know that I love you. What that has to mean for Peter as well as for us, if we're going to use Peter's words as a follow-up prayer to Thomas's prayer, what that's got to mean is, Lord, I hold you as I hold you more precious than the opinions of others around me. I hold you more precious than the things of this world, and indeed more precious than my own life. Peter cannot follow Jesus unless this is what lord i love you means for him and it's the same for us so in a moment i'm going to lead us in a prayer but here's some questions who do you love more jesus or your job jesus or your reputation do do you love jesus more than you love your spouse do you love Jesus more than you love your children? Do you love Jesus more than the prospect of a spouse? Because un- unless the answer is yes, you, you can't follow Jesus. God loves love him more than anything and anybody and everyone and everything. Um, uh, uh, if not, that's just unsafe, that's uh, Unrighteous—that's wicked. That's idolatry. Um, one thing or another, drag you straight to hell. So uh, let's pray, and, uh, um, uh, and and I'll lead us in a prayer. Um, Father, we invite you now, in the name of Jesus, that by your Holy Spirit, you might please put your finger on anything in our lives that we hold more dear than Jesus, your Son. Uh, we invite you uh, to reveal that to us either right now or through our prayer times, our, 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 our living in the week to come, in our lives to come. Please, by your Holy Spirit, give us a passion for the Son of God that is unequaled in our lives by any other passion, interest, or love. That we might be able to say, truly, along with Peter, along with Thomas, my Lord and my God, along with Peter, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. And so, Father, we offer ourselves to you as a living sacrifice through Jesus Christ, our Lord, Send us out in the power of your Spirit to live and work to your praise and glory. In Jesus' name.